Good morning. My name is Pastor John, and I'm glad that you've joined us this morning, whether you're here in the sanctuary or whether you're joining us online. Thank you for participating in worship here at East Shore Baptist Church. We've been going through a little bit of a series called Now What? Just looking at things going on in the world or pressing issues and thinking, now what? What are we to be doing? What should we be doing? How should we be responding at this time? And this week we're thinking about how we can't really look at a news source or go online or check anything without seeing someone crying out for some form of justice. Some form of justice. People saying they want justice. I know it's kind of, or I realize it's kind of scary to say this, but if the year ended now in September and we were looking back on 2020, I think the two defining news stories of the year would have been obviously the coronavirus and then the large-scale protest and everything connected with that in our country, at least in an American context. I think we could probably agree those are the two biggest news stories of the year. So these cries for justice are something that are going on, not only connected to racial justice like those things, but we hear people all the time saying, this thing needs justice, this thing needs to be addressed. And when we hear that, if we're going to know how we should respond, especially if we're concerned about responding in a way that honors God, well then we need to know what God has to say about justice. In many ways, the message this morning is kind of a companion to one that I did about two weeks ago where we were talking about cancel culture, which is the idea that if you don't say the right thing, then you're canceled. You have no right to speak. You have no right to say anything. And what we talked about is that kind of denies the dignity of human beings. No one should be canceled for something that they say, whether it's right or wrong. But we have to look and think about what I don't want to call it the other side, but the other perspective of that. What is justice then? What is it that people are arguing for if they say that? So if something confuses you today or you're unsure of the point I'm making, it might help to listen back to that one about two weeks ago. We need God's truth both from the text we look at then as well as the one today. The reason why somebody says you're canceled or I'm not going to listen to you is because there's a lot of emotion that's often arising from a source of pain, a response to an injustice, whether a real one or or just one that they perceived. And while we talked about two weeks ago, it's a step too far to say you're canceled if you don't have the same view of justice. On the other hand, seeking justice is a noble pursuit. And there's so many calls for justice around us, whether it's businesses being treated fairly with different coronavirus restrictions or calling for justice for the lives of the unborn or addressing racial injustice. So today we're going to look at a passage that exposes the real problem of injustice and teaches us as Christians to seek justice for those who are in need. So let's pray and then we'll look at God's word. Lord, thank you for this time we have in your word this morning. God, in a world that's crying out for justice, help us to learn what that means to you. Teach us how we should respond to that. Help us to acknowledge how If we don't have justice, that's hypocrisy, and so we should seek it and help us to recognize and trust that you are the one who is in control and the one who will ultimately bring true, lasting justice through your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. So today we're going to be in the book of Isaiah, the very first chapter of that book, and uh, on your notes, if you're using the note sheet, it says verses 16 through 18. I'm going to back up a couple verses in a little bit to help us understand what's happening here. 
But it might help if we think about what's going on here. So this is in the Old Testament. Isaiah is a prophet, and he's talking to God's people, the Israelites, or really at this time, people who lived in a land called Judah. And he's speaking to them, and he's speaking from God's perspective, saying that they are under judgment of God's word. The problem with these people wasn't that they were disobeying everything God had said, but they were picking and choosing what parts to obey, and they were especially good at offering sacrifices. God had created a system where if you offered an animal, it represented your sin being paid for and your right relationship with God. And the people in Judah were really good at offering all the sacrifices they were supposed to. But Isaiah points out their hearts are far from God. They were unwilling to protect the weakest members of their nation. They were supposed to be faithful in all areas, but their unfaithfulness toward those who were vulnerable or in need meant that judgment would be coming, a change would be coming very soon. And Isaiah recognizes early in chapter 1 that some will repent, some will change their hearts and minds, they'll come back to God, and God will use them to save others. And then he gets to the text we're looking at today, and he first starts by addressing the problem that's happening in Judah. And the problem is that a lack of justice is hypocrisy. A lack of justice is hypocrisy, saying one thing and doing another. So we're going to back up to verse 10. So Isaiah chapter 1, I'll be starting in verse 10. And right here, I'm going to read through verse 15, if you want to follow along in your scripture, or the words will also appear on the screens or online. So Isaiah 1, starting in verse 10, he writes, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beast. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, well, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. These are some very harsh words from God to his people. So he's speaking to them and he's saying that although they appear to be very religious, they had lots of offerings, sacrifices, a whole bunch of festivals they were doing. Isaiah and God's being through him is saying, you're really just going through the motions. The Israelites were using these lavish worship experiences to neglect their responsibility to care for others. Look at the harsh language God uses. In verse 10, he calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. He's comparing their sin, what they're doing, which we'll look is they're not treating the most at-risk people in their society the way they should. Their failure to do that, he says, the same level of guilt and the same judgment, the same rebellion that was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. That is a strong word from God. And Isaiah is kind of saying the only difference between you and Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities that were destroyed for their sin, the only difference is God's mercy, that you haven't been destroyed while they were. He then says that God has no pleasure, no delight 
in their sacrifices. He doesn't care how many there are. He has had enough. And this is a common theme in the Old Testament prophets. Another prophet, Malachi, said that, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, shut the doors of the temple, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. Now, God had told his people they should have sacrifices and offerings, and the people were being very faithful to do it. But the point of the sacrifices and offerings is that the people would do them and would represent their heart for God, their desire to be close to him. Their acknowledgement that they had sinned, they'd rebelled against God, they needed to be restored to a right relationship with him. But if they were choosing to sin in other areas, then the sacrifices were not accomplishing that purpose. One of God's prophets named Samuel would put it this way, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To listen is better than the fat of rams. He then, God speaking in verse 12 in our passage, says when they appear before him, when they come into the temple, what he calls it is, they're supposed to be worshiping, but he calls it a trampling. Who has required this trampling of my courts? God's saying to them, you haven't come to worship me. You're just walking around my house. They're trampling his courts. And then he gives a list of all the things that they're supposed to be doing. In verse 13, he talks about offerings, incense, celebrating the new moon once a month, the Sabbath every week, having a convocation where all of Israel came together, having solemn assemblies where they're quiet before God. These are things they are supposed to be doing. But because they were sinning in these other areas, God says, it's almost like you shouldn't have been doing it. It wasn't doing you any good because you were hiding your sin in other areas. One New Testament scholar named Willem van Gemmeren said, ritual is never an acceptable substitute for true godliness. They were doing these rituals, but they didn't have true godliness, a heart for God. And so that didn't make up for that. It's not a balance in God's court. It's not, well, if I fail in this area, but I do these other things, then everything will even out at the end. That's, that's not the way God sees it. We can't do one thing to make up for something else. We only need his grace and need to have whole hearts for him. The prophet Jeremiah would say, would you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we are delivered. And then only to go on doing all these abominations. And Jeremiah's point is, this should not be happening. You cannot say, we're following God, but I'm not going to do this thing, but God and I are still good. We can't do that. Such actions are ultimately meaningless. God is passionate about how we live at all times. We cannot ignore one part of the word and then do another. Again, that scholar Willem van Gemmeren talks about what's happening here. He says, the people's worship was not from the heart. It was not accompanied by the personal holiness and, as we'll get to in a little bit, in the social justice that God requires. Now, I know my audience, and I know you see that phrase, you go, social justice, Pastor John, what are you putting up there on the screen? <laughs> well, let me assure you, this scholar, William Van Gemmeren, he is a conservative Christian scholar. He is being faithful to the word. And what he's acknowledging is that God has an expectation that there is basic justice among his people. 
It's not the only thing God is concerned about. When we make it too much and make it, this is the one thing that determines if you're right before God, that's too far. But justice is still important to God. It's not just the Old Testament. Jesus says it too. Look at Matthew 23, 23. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. You tithe, you give from little things like mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. That's the same thing God is saying here. And because they've neglected that, in 14, he says that he's been troubled, he's burdened by their religious observances that they do with these unholy lives. His his word, he says, your new moons, your appointed feast, my soul hates, he hates them. Isaiah will come back to this in chapter 43. God says, you have not bought me sweet cane with money. You have not satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. You have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. And the result of this is the last verse we looked at, verse 15. It means God does not hear or answer their prayers. When they spread out their hands, it was a way they prayed. God didn't see their prayers. He didn't hear because all he saw was their hands were full, covered with the blood of the people that they were oppressing. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Another prophet, Micah, said, then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. So what do we take from this? We should take that. We should not expect God to bless a life of wickedness. Our sin will find us out. If we are failing in one area and know it, we cannot then say, well, I'm doing all these other things, so God and I will be good. Here, the issue relates to justice, but it doesn't matter what the sin is. If there's some sin we have that's hidden, the truth will come out. God will reveal it either this side of eternity or the other. And if we're making choices deliberately against God's word, we should not expect God's favor. Now, that doesn't mean that, well, if I'm doing everything right, that means God's going to bless me and give me everything I want. No, that's too far as well. But when we make deliberate wrong choices, God says he will bring judgment. Here, we're about to see that it's a failure on God's people to practice justice. And it will show us how important this is to God. The reason God hates their sacrifices is because there is no justice in their land. So what we see then, if the problem is a lack of justice is hypocrisy, the solution, God's solution, is that his people should seek justice. Seek justice. Let's look at verses 16 through 18. God says to the people, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God is saying that his people have been defiled by their unclean lifestyle. They need to change. They need to get rid of their sin. 
he doesn't use the word here, but a word that we sometimes use is repent, a change. They need to turn away from their sin and turn toward God. They need to remove, take their evil out of God's sight. In his words, they are to cease, they are to stop doing evil, give up their evil ways, their ways against God, the lack of justice that they are showing. Peter will reference this idea when he quotes Psalm 34 in the New Testament. He says, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. It's a call for us to repent, to turn away from living for ourselves and our desires so that we'll have lives that are clean before God. So very practically, this turning away means that we cease to do evil, and instead, as verse 17 says, we learn to do good and right to our neighbors. Or to put it in two words, he says, seek justice. And then he tells us exactly what this means. What that means is that we correct oppression. We defend, we help those who are repressed. Or perhaps your translation puts it, we reprove, we rebuke the oppressors. Regardless, we're helping someone who's oppressed, whether we're helping them directly or stopping those who are oppressing them. And this looks like bringing justice, taking up the cause of defending those who are fatherless or orphans, and pleading, fighting for the cause of widows. Who the prophet's addressing here are the most vulnerable people in Isaiah's day. The people who were most at risk, most in danger of being taken advantage of were those who were women who were widows and were unable to provide for themselves, or orphans who didn't have parents to look out for them. They were the most at-risk people. And so to God, seeking justice would be upholding God's standards of fairness and advancing the rights of those who were oppressed, weak, and marginalized. They're seeking what is good and right for others. And the church throughout church history has known this. The Protestant reformer John Calvin said, we must not resemble those idle people who think that they have done enough if they've kept themselves from doing harm from invading the property of their neighbors. We don't just do that, but they're not careful to perform acts of kindness. So Christian living is just not doing harm to others. Well, if I don't hurt anybody else, then I'm good. No, there's an active step of seeking the good, the benefit of those who are vulnerable, whatever that looks like in our context. One scholar, Raymond Ortland Jr., said, doing good in God's sight includes seeking the just, the fair, the right functioning of society. All society should function in a way that reflects God's order, that reflects basic fairness. But we all know enough about the world to know that that's not the way the world works right now. It's not the way the world has really ever worked, and it wasn't working that way in the time Isaiah is writing this, because that's verse 17. If we jump down to verse 23, whether you look in the scripture or on the screen, this is what God says. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. And look at this last part. They do not bring justice to the fatherless. The widow's cause does not come to them. They're deliberately failing to do what they were told to do in verse 17. And this is repeated throughout Scripture. 
Other Old Testament prophets made the same point. In Jeremiah 22, thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness. Deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the resident alien. That means uh, a sojourner, an immigrant, somebody coming in, not a part of the people. Do no wrong or violence to them or to the fatherless and the widow. And there's those two again. Nor shed innocent blood in this place. And the New Testament adds the very same point. James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So they've failed to look after those who are in need in their society, but God's not done with them. He hasn't rejected them because in verse 18, he puts out a call for them to consider their position before God. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Let's sit down and discuss this. Let's settle this right now, today. Though your sins are like scarlet, your sins are red, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Their bloody hands, he talked about earlier, can be cleansed. If you remember back in verse 15, he was talking about prayer. When they spread out their hands, he's going to hide his eyes and make many prayers They will not listen. Why? Because their hands are full of blood. So here he's addressing it just a few verses later. He says, yes, your hands are full of blood, but there is a solution. If you remember your high school English class, you may have read Shakespeare's play Macbeth when you were there, or perhaps you've revisited sometime in your adulthood. But if you remember that play, one character, Lady Macbeth, after she and her husband commit murder, she looks at her hands and she always sees spots on them. She sees the murder that she has done. It's not actually there, but that's what she sees. So in this way, though, it's kind of the opposite. We're the one who's done wrong, and we look at our hands like, my hands look pretty good to me, but God looks, and he sees the spots, the stains of sin. But again, there's a way to be clean. There's a way. God can cleanse it, and it's something he has to do. Psalm 51 says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. If we come to God, if we do what he said, repent, if we turn away from that sin and have our trust in him, then our love affair with sin will end. The staining effect of sin will be washed away. Again, in Isaiah, God himself says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. As a cloud, the mist is here and then it goes. God has pushed it away if we've turned, if we've come to him. It is only God who can fully, completely wash us in this way. And that's the wonderful news of Scripture, is that even though we're stained by sin and failure, again, for God's people, it was a lack of justice, but for us, it could be any number of things. We're not trusting God. Perhaps we're lying or cheating or stealing or perhaps we're... Uh, doing wrong to somebody else for our own advantage, whatever it is, that is why God sent his son Jesus. He sent him to live and fully obey God's word. And because he did that, we can now have a right relationship with God. He lived perfectly, then he died for our sin so that we could be restored to God. So we could be cleansed, be whiter than snow, the way he describes here. That happens as we turn away from sin and turn toward God in faith and trust. 
This happens through the person and work of Jesus Christ, and this is our great need for him. If you are hearing this and you're feeling, yes, I have sinned against God, I'm not right with him, then turn away from that sin and call out to him. Come to a relationship with him. You need it. We all need it. You can talk to someone, to me or someone else about how you can do that, but your sin can only be cleansed if you believe and trust in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would do that. But what about for those of us who have, who are believers in Jesus Christ? The question we need to answer is, well, now what? We've read this, but now what? What are we supposed to be doing, Pastor John? I I see these things about sin and justice, but what does that mean for us? Well, there's a couple application points we should think about. The first one, the first now what application is that we should seek God's heart. We should seek God's heart. What we've seen in this passage is a lot of strong language of judgment on God's people, and the reason God did it is because they were failing to practice justice. So we should recognize that God has a heart, that God cares about justice. And the lesson we should take from that is we shouldn't speak ill of someone pursuing that. We might not agree with the kind of justice they're looking for, but we should acknowledge they're seeking justice. God has given that desire. He's put within us a desire for things to be right for things to be fair and good. There's over 130 references to justice in the Bible. I read someone who said that justice is the central ethical idea of the Old Testament. They're saying if you read the New Testament, there's a lot of talk about love. In the Old Testament, there's a lot of talk about justice. So how could we define justice the way the Bible does? I don't have this on the screen, but a definition I found from, this is the Holman Uh, Bible dictionary was justice is the order God seeks to reestablish in his creation. It's an order that God is trying to reestablish in his creation. And in this order, all people receive the benefits of life with him, life with God. The order God seeks to reestablish in his creation where all people receive the benefits of life with him. This is the standard God gives by which penalties are assigned and advantages are handed out, especially to those in need. It's the divine norm, the way right, equal, equitable living should be. And in the Old Testament and the New, the implication is God's people should do all that is essential to make this kind of justice happen, to bring it about. Now, if you hear all this talk of justice bringing things about, if this sounds foreign to you, or God forbid this sounds liberal to you, well, then maybe we need a fuller understanding of God's word. This is something that God cares about. There is an assumption that God's people will live in community, that they will seek justice for one another, and that the fruit, the result of this will be seen. In the book of Deuteronomy, God's people were supposed to say this, have a little call and response. Someone was supposed to say, cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, that foreigner, that immigrant, the fatherless, the orphan, and the widow. And all the people are to shout back, Amen. Now we hear all this, and there's a lot of talk here, but what exactly does this look like to God? What does justice look like in God's sight? Well, his law helps us out here. He's given us these early books that talk about God's law and what that should look like. And one of the best passages is in the book of Leviticus. So I'm not going to read all of it, but a large chunk of this passage, Leviticus 19, 13 through 18, I think does a good job telling us what justice should look like to God. It says, you shall not oppress your neighbor 
or rob him. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, taking advantage of those who can't defend themselves. But you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. And then he says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer, speaking ill of others among your people. You shall not stand up, speak against the life of your neighbor. You should value their life. I am the Lord. And then he says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's a standard of justice we don't see practiced very much in the world, but it's the kind of justice that God desires to see. And if you looked at that, there might be something that looks a little bit familiar at the very end of that verse, something that we may have heard before. And we may have heard it because Jesus said it's the second most important commandment in God's word. Book of Matthew, someone asked him what the greatest commandment is, and he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, loving God. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, depend, hang, all of the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament can be summed up in those two statements about loving God and loving our neighbors. Now, I realize that that doesn't answer every question we may have. And followers of God, people passionate about him, can disagree about the specific policies, politicians, parties that make for a just and fair society. But we cannot argue with God's heart that he cares about this. So we should not mock someone who's seeking justice. We should ask the questions and figure out what is their reason behind it? What exactly are they looking for? And is this reflecting God's heart and God's desire for justice? This is maybe a place where we need to repent or turn away from where we have failed because we may have mocked or downplayed, belittled or ignored someone crying out for justice while God has a heart for it. It's important to him. And so if we recognize that, we can then have the second application. If we recognize God has a heart for justice, then we can seek to understand. We can seek to understand someone's desire for justice. Because understanding someone is far better than winning the argument against them. It's much more valuable than winning a vote against them. Understanding where they're coming from. Because... Paul writes about this in the New Testament. He says that there may be no division in the body in the church, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And he points out if one member suffers, all members suffer together. And if one member is honored, then all rejoice together. We may not agree with every single issue everybody brings up for justice, but many people who cry out for justice are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that means we are obligated as Christians to listen to them and listen with respect. That doesn't mean we have to agree with their solutions, but we should approach it with loving understanding, willing to listen first and talk later. And when we listen this way, with empathy, trying to understand, not be right, not win the argument, but hear what they're saying, well, then we're modeling God's love. There's one very sad but very beautiful passage that I love from the book of Exodus. In this passage, the people of Israel groaned. They're crying out because of their slavery. They cried out 
for help. They are suffering. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God said, you really don't have it as bad as some other people do, so you all need to calm down a little bit. No, no, God heard their groaning. And God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. I get goosebumps when I read that. God saw their suffering and God knew. He knew what they were going through. He understood where they were and he cared. God hears the suffering of his people. So should we. Again, it's just a time where perhaps we need to repent, acknowledge that I've failed in this area and instead commit to listen and understand rather than complain or mock. And if we've understood, then we're at a place where we can seek justice. Seek justice for those who are weak or cannot get it themselves. This is, we read it in our text in verse 17, but a repeated command in Scripture. Here's just two examples. Psalm 106, blessed are those who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. The book of Isaiah, thus says the Lord, keep justice, do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come, my righteousness will be revealed. We're to keep, we're to do what God himself is doing. This is something God requires of us. Look at what Micah says about it. In Micah 6, 8, he says, He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? What does he require but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God? This is something that believers have recognized. This church is part of the Southern Baptist Convention, and as Southern Baptists, we've recognized how important this is. In our statement of faith, which is called the Baptist Faith and Message, one place in it, it's the 15th article, says, all Christians are under obligation to seek to make the will of Christ supreme in our own lives and in human society. Every Christian should seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of the principles of righteousness, truth, and brotherly love. And while the word justice isn't there, I think the implication and meaning very clearly is. We're to seek this kind of fairness for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I just used that word fairness, and you may say, well, Pastor John, I hate to tell you this, but life isn't fair, Pastor John, and so some people just need to learn that life isn't fair, and it doesn't quite work out the way you want it. And yes, that's true. Life is, isn't fair. We don't get what we want. But just because life isn't fair doesn't mean that we should not seek justice and seek fairness for others. Just because we won't achieve it fully completely doesn't mean we're off the hook from seeking it. You know, God spoke about a desire for fairness among his people. This was a really interesting passage. This is 2 Corinthians 8. God's speaking to a church, and he's telling them they should give to other churches. And here's why he says Why? For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance, you have more money at the present time, that should supply their need, their lack, so that at another time, their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. Fairness is important to God. I know some ladies have done a Bible study from the women's speaker and author, Jen Wilkin. And so she put it this way, those of us who have any form of advantage must use it, must seek to use it to benefit our neighbors. Those of us who have more than our daily bread each day must have open eyes, open hands for those who are still awaiting theirs. And the reason she says this, why, why should we do this? Well, remember our text. 
If we're not seeking justice, then our worship will not be accepted because we're living contrary to the Lord. The reason God said all those things about why are you doing this? I'm burdened. I've had enough. I hate what you're doing is because they were not practicing justice. They were not living for God, worshiping Him rightly. If we fail to love others, then we're not worshiping God rightly. The prophet Hosea said, For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And we may say, but Pastor John, we don't offer burnt offerings. That's not a part of our worship. But we sing praise. We gather together. We give some of our money that he has given. We attempt to serve God, build his kingdom here. And if we're failing to show love, then that kind of worship won't be accepted. The prophet Zacharias says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness, mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. Let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. I have to admit, when I check social media, I see a lot of devising evil against one another in our hearts. God has called us to seek justice. What does that look like? Well, I think if we're going beyond Scripture to say, well, this is definitely the way God says it should happen. We need to have long, hard conversations about what justice looks like. But for believers, it should always come from the same desire, a justice, a fairness, a desire to honor God. Again, a time for us to repent of where we've lived for ourselves and a commitment to live out and seek justice while we're here on earth. We can only do it with our lifetime because at the end of the day, our last application is we should seek to trust God. Seek to trust God. Because Scripture also tells us that God will bring true justice, lasting, permanent, eternal justice in His timing and in His way. Again, this is very common in Scripture. Psalm 103, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Psalm 140, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted. He will execute justice for the needy. Psalm 37, for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. This is a message of truth that preachers of God's word have embraced. One well-known pastor you may have heard of was named Martin Luther King Jr. The way he said it was, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And King was a preacher. He had studied God's word. He knew his Bible, and he's realizing justice doesn't happen on its own, but as God works, as God works in the world and as he works through his people. As the book of Isaiah says, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. So this true lasting justice that's coming, it awaits the return of Jesus Christ, because it's only when Christ is here, when he returns and reigns and rules, that this justice will be fully applied. Now, that's a truth that we need to embrace, that it will wait till Christ comes. It's not something we can bring in through our effort. But there's also a wrong application we can take from that. The wrong application that we can take is, well, if true justice waits for Jesus, then we shouldn't seek justice now. We don't have to work for it. We can wait for Jesus to come and fix things. The world's too far gone anyway, so we should just let it go and wait for Jesus to come. But friends, 
We just read a passage in Isaiah 1 that is condemning. God is speaking against that very attitude. They were worshiping God, praising Him in the sanctuary, but they weren't showing justice in their community, and He is condemning that. And we should be very, very careful that the words we read today do not describe us. We should seek justice, but know that Jesus is coming to bring it. The last passage of Scripture we'll look at is another one from Jeremiah, a wonderful prophecy looking forward. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a descendant of David, which was Jesus. He shall reign as king and deal wisely. He shall execute. He shall do justice and righteousness in the land. So this is the Bible's teaching on justice. It's something God desires. He wants the world to function this way. It's something he expects his people to work for. But we should know where our final victory, where final justice comes from, not from us, but from him, from Jesus Christ. Before we wrap up this time, I would like to speak to those, maybe there's some of you who are passionate about an issue of justice. I don't know what that issue is. Maybe it's uh, something like the racial justice issues that are going on in the world. Maybe you're passionate about the lives of the unborn. Maybe you're passionate about ending sex trafficking or something like that. There's some issue, some justice issue that you are extremely passionate about. This last point is the application that you need to seek to trust God because God is in control and he's got this. And I realize you can look at the church and it can become frustrating or upsetting because God has gifted the church with many different people who have different perspectives and personalities and different passions. And he's done that because none of us has fully arrived. None of us can say, I alone care for everything God cares about and everyone else doesn't. They fall short of that. None of us is there. And so if you have an issue you're passionate about, it can be very frustrating to look at a church, whether this one or anyone or God's body as a whole, and say, these people are not as passionate about this issue as I am. Again, whatever it is. And there's a temptation when we see people aren't as passionate as we are, there's a temptation to condemn others, say, well, they're just not as spiritual as I am. If you were as spiritual as I was, you would care as much about ending abortion as I do. If you were as spiritual as I was, you would care as much about racial justice. And I have to warn you, friends, I understand that desire. I understand that frustration. I feel it too. But that road of feeling you're better than others, that's a road to division. That is not a road to justice. So let me encourage you. If you are passionate about something, some justice issue, if it burns a fire in your soul, that is wonderful. That passion that you have, that is beautiful and God-given. Never lose that. Persevere with patience and grace. And know that you are not responsible to convince every person. That's God's job. That's not your job. Your job is to trust God. Your job is to faithfully seek the justice that God has placed on your heart. For all of us, friends, God has called us as followers of Christ to seek justice. Will we do that? Will we do what God has commanded? Will we do it with the knowledge that God can bring justice into the world because of Jesus Christ? Because he died for sin, true justice is possible. God can restore his order in creation. Jesus has brought this about, so let's praise him for that.